What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today we have a Q&A episode. So thank you to everybody who asked a question. You guys know the drill. I'm going to do my best to get through as many of these as I can in something like 30 minutes, but then probably break that rule and go way over anyway. So let's jump into it. First question is from Rachel Ware, and she asks, can you still gain muscle using a Smith machine, dumbbells, and cables, but no barbell? So essentially Planet Fitness, except at Planet Fitness, you'd have machines as well, and that would be even better. But to keep, to keep it within the context of your question, the answer is absolutely yes. Can you still gain muscle using a Smith, dumbbells, and cables, but no barbell? Yes, absolutely. Not only that, but I would take your situation over having just a barbell any day. Um, and again, it's not mutually exclusive. You can have some combination of these, of course, but man, if I had the choice between a Smith, dumbbells, and cables, or a barbell, I would take the the, the former any day, the Smith, the dumbbells, and the cables. Um, and honestly, the Smith, you could even lose the Smith. I'd say the Smith is going to come really in handy here for hip thrusts and glute bridges. But outside of that, I mean, dumbbells and cables and an adjustable bench is going to get you a just absolutely a ton of a ton of good work. And now we're talking specifically in the context of hypertrophy, because I think if you want to be a power lifter, you need to do the big three, you need to practice with the barbell. But if we're talking strictly about gaining muscle, like the context of this question, barbells have some downsides. I would take dumbbells and cables any day of the week. And, you know, just to, to, to make the answer to this question the most helpful, let's talk about a couple of those downsides of barbells and maybe the upsides of cables and dumbbells. Um, when we're thinking of the downside of barbells, three things really jumped to top of mind. One is that a lot of barbell movements require a high degree of stability when compared to their machine and cable counterparts. And you might be thinking, you know, isn't that a good thing? Like, don't I want there to be a high degree of stability or it, don't I want things to require me to, you know, have a high degree of stability? You know, you hear people saying in the gym, oh, bro, it uses the stabilizing muscles. You want to work the stabilizing muscles. Why? Why do I want to work the stabilizing muscles? I don't want to work the, st like, I want to grow the tissue that I'm trying to grow. I want to grow the muscle that I'm trying to grow. I want to put tension through the muscle that I'm trying to grow. And so this, like, requirement of a high degree of stability is actually a downside for hypertrophy. You don't want your body so focused on stabilizing itself that you get worse output, that you're unable to try really hard, that you're unable to more optimally load the tissue you're trying to load. And so this requirement of a high degree of stability is a downside for, for hypertrophy. I'd rather a machine that has a chest assistance and a really nice, you know, arc of a movement where I'm seated with, you know, maybe chest assistance or I'm holding on to something, I'm braced, where that stability component is no longer, you know, my body doesn't have to worry about stabilizing myself. Now all I have to worry about is putting tension through the target musculature that I'm trying to grow. And so this requirement of a high degree of stability with a lot of barbell movements is in fact a downside for hypertrophy. The second thing would be you have a limited resistance profile. Let's say you just have a barbell, right? Limited resistance profile. You're always fighting against gravity, which, you know, isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's not like fighting against gravity. It's not like the resistance profile of the barbell is always bad. It's not. It's that you have a limited variability. You're always fighting gravity. And so what that might mean, you know, is something like, let's say you're doing a barbell row, which is a, a fine back exercise, right? But the barbell row kind of, you know, uh, I was going to say violates, but is suboptimal for the for both of these first two reasons. One, it requires a super high degree of stability. Now, again, I say suboptimal. It's still a good exercise. We're going to talk about this. But potentially suboptimal because it requires a high degree of stability because you have to maintain this like RDL position, this hinged position, your lower back, core, hamstring, glutes, posterior chain have to create that, st that stable um, base for you to actually then begin rowing. And the second is that you have the limited, you have a limited resistance profile. Like uh, most of your rowing with barbells is like always going to be hardest in the shortened position where you are weakest, which probably isn't something, again, it's not that that's the end of the world. It's that you only have that option, right? 
And so you always are gonna be doing rows that are easiest where you are strongest in the lengthened position, lengthened and mid-range, and then get aggressively harder as you get weaker, which is potentially not something you want all the time. Well, it's certainly not something you want all the time. And again, it's it's not that this is a this is necessarily the end of the world. It's that you're you're limited to this resistance profile all the time. And obviously on the contrary, if you're using cables for rows, you'll just have a better opportunity to load, uh, I would say cables and machines. You'll have a, an opportunity to kind of change the resistance profile to better suit whatever movement you're doing, whether it's body position or arm path or you know difference in uh, ways that you can set up the machine to make it more advantageous for certain parts of the muscle uh, at certain lengths, which we're gonna talk about later. Somebody had a question on that as well. And then the third reason there might be, you know, downside of barbells is that locks your joints into sp very specific positions. I mean, think about think about a barbell bench press. Like one of the main functions of the pec is humeral adduction. What that means is just bringing the arm closer to the midline of the body. Imagine you were doing a dumbbell press. At the bottom, the dumbbells are a little bit wider. At the top, they are a little bit closer. That act of bringing the arm closer to the midline of the body is the main function of the pec. But when you're using a barbell for a barbell bench press, your hands are locked on that bar and they're not getting closer together throughout the movement. Now there is a slight bit of adduction in with a barbell, but not enough to really maximize that function of the pec. And so if you ask me, hey, dumbbells or barbells, first of all, it's not always either or, but if you had to frame it that way as an educational tool, I would pick dumbbells for, for pressing all the time because you get the chance to actually work some of that adduction where with a barbell you don't. And so it also locks you into either full pronation or full supination. You don't have an op, like your palms are either down holding the bar or completely supinated up holding the bar. You don't have an opportunity to get anything even near neutral or even just in between full pronation and full supination. And so that's definitely gonna limit to some degree comfort, but also for certain exercises like pressing. Let's say you were stuck with a barbell bench press. You know, it's probably going to be a little bit more advantageous from an anti-injury perspective, from a shoulder perspective, shoulder health perspective, and from a biomechanics of loading the the, pec, the pecs more optimally to have a bit of a more neutral grip, something that's not fully pronated, right? And yes, it's gonna matter your arm path as well, but if you can get a more neutral grip, something like maybe a, like a football bar with like the neutral grips, um, you're gonna be better able to load the pecs a little bit better, even without this humeral adduction, right? Um, and so downside of barbells, while there might be more if we spent more time on this, um, high degree of stability is required, which is a downside for hypertrophy, limited resistance profile for lots of, lots of exercises, and it locks the joints into specific positions. Now, like with, you know, comparing this to dumbbells and cables, you're gonna have way more versatility in resistance profiles and more freedom to set up your limbs and joints and grip and arm path in a way that's best for the muscles that you're trying to bias and likely less injurious because you're gonna be able to figure out what arm path does my shoulder feel best in, let's say, right? Now to throw barbells a bone, what is the upside of barbells? Well, they're very versatile for the space, right? And it's very easy to load a lot of weight, which for home, jet, home gym setups can be really helpful. Um, like if you're trying to do, and we're gonna name, you know, I, I guess for barbells, there are things that I do like doing that are hard to replace would be things like RDLs, good mornings, thrusts and bridges. Now for RDLs, I still think a hex bar would be better because of that more neutral shoulder position. Um, but a barbell's damn good for, for I would take a barbell over a dumbbell um, for uh, things like RDLs. And then you're definitely gonna need a barbell or in this case, a Smith machine is gonna work well uh, for things like thrusts and bridges. So, you know, if it's all you have, we're obviously gonna use the hell out of your barbell. It's, a, you know, it's, a, it, it's gonna give us an opportunity to load the tissue heavy enough to actually grow. And so we're absolutely gonna use it, right? Can you still build a ton of muscle with barbells? Yes. 
Should you stop using a barbell after hearing this? No. If you had access to every piece of equipment, would you would barbells be at the top of the list? No. If you're at home and just using barbells, would it behoove you to get some dumbbells? Yes. If you're at home just using barbells, maybe dumbbells too, would it also behoove you or would it be worth looking into some form of a cable setup? Hell yeah. Even if it's a single top and bottom cable, so many good variations that you can add to your arsenal, right? Um, you know, if, if you're at home and it would it be beneficial to looking, looking into something more like a football bar or a neutral grip bar to give you more fr shoulder-friendly pressing options? Yes, but I would even say, you know, obviously cables are going to reign supreme, but we're talking about a home gym. It's not necessarily super practical to buy this like $5,000 cable setup, but um, I would still say going with dumbbells for your pressing almost all the time. Like, and just because we talk about something having downsides doesn't mean it's useless. People have been, people have been and will continue for eternity to get jacked with barbells. If you're at home, we're going to use the hell out of them. Does that have downsides? Sure. Not everyone has access to every piece of equipment ever. So let's do the best of what we have, but let's also be honest about the trade-offs and maybe that pushes you into a gym a couple times a week or to invest in a cable stack or finally get some dumbbells. And I think that's a that's a good call. Like anyone's like, no, you just need to lift heavy with the barbell. It's all you gotta do. You're gonna be fine. Like, it's not true. It's probably worth investing, especially if you're in a home gym, into some form of a cable setup uh, with dumbbells and a barbell. And now you're now you're starting to give yourself a bit of a more optimal stimulus, more variation in a lot of those, you know, stability and joint setups and resistance profiles. Cool. So said I was going to do 30 minutes. Here's 10 minutes on the first question, but moving on. JT's 17 asks, why is it important to train muscles at different lengths? Oh man, these, I'm not getting through 10 questions. Um, okay. So what does that even mean training a muscle at different lengths? Well, let's look at your glutes and let's take two exercises that are contrasting in this way. Let's take the RDL. The RDL, where is the RDL the hardest? It's hardest at the bottom where your glutes are fully stretched, where they are lengthened. And let's contrast that with a glute bridge. And where is that the hardest? It's hardest at the top where your glutes are fully shortened. And just so recognizing that there are exercises that are hard at different lengths would be the first step. Now, why is it important? Well, for two reasons, I'd say one, you get a different training effect, which we're gonna talk about. And another one would be different, different in terms of regional hypertrophy, like which parts of the muscle are gonna grow more at certain, uh, uh, where the muscle is challenged at different lengths. So you're gonna get a different training effect from exercises that are hardest in the shortened position and exercises that are hardest in the lengthened. If you have an exercise that is hardest in the shortened position, let's take the glute bridge, you're gonna get a bit more of a metabolic adaptations. Uh, you're gonna get more metabolic adaptations. And we take an exercise that's harder in the lengthened position like, uh, like an RDL. It's gonna be able to cause a bit more muscle damage. And for that reason, it's probably more likely better for hypertrophy versus a, a shortened bias exercise. Now that doesn't mean you only do RDLs, you never do bridges, of course you do both. Um, if you only had to do one exercise forever, you would probably pick the lengthened exercise if your goal was hypertrophy, but you don't have to just pick one exercise, so you should be training all of these things. Um, if your goal was maximal hypertrophy, would you bias a little bit more of your training towards more lengthened bias exercises? Yes, like RDLs and lunges versus a ton of bridges and 45 degree hip extensions? Sure. If you were looking for more of a metabolic adaptation or uh, like uh, and trying to limit muscle damage, then you would probably bias a little bit more towards shortened bias exercises. Now, this is a bit advanced. What you need to know is that they are different and that it is important to recognize one, that they are different and two, you're going to want a little bit of those metabolic adaptations sometimes, and you're going to want a little bit more of the hypertrophic adaptations other times. And then you also have this 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 difference between uh, in terms of like regional hypertrophy. Like some parts of the muscle are going to work harder 
uh, when the joint is oriented in a certain way versus another. And so if, when you're working muscles in the, that are, you know, or working muscles in their shortest position, let's say in the bridge, certain muscle, certain parts of that muscle are going to be working harder than in the RDL. And so if we're looking for like most optimal growth, it's probably best to use both within your training. Now, again, in more advanced programming, you can use these differences to be more specific with the stimuli that you're trying to get out of your training. If you're in a metabolic phase, you're going to be biasing a little bit more towards shorter position biased exercise or shorter position overloaded exercises. If you're in more of a hypertrophy style programming, you know, maybe even trying to maximize uh, mechanical damage, you're going to use a little bit more uh, lengthened bias overloaded exercises. And so, uh, yes, that's a bit more advanced. What you need to know is that they're, that they're different in terms of the training effect that you get, one being more metabolic, one being a little bit more hypertrophic, a little bit more muscle damage. But if you're looking for best hypertrophy, you're probably going to have both because they also work, certain parts of that muscle are gonna work harder in the shortened position, some of them are gonna work harder in the lengthened position. And if you want most optimal growth, it's probably best to use both within your training. Next question is from Jess Bubble, and she asks, why does my coach program, why does my coach program progressing RPE within the same exercise and some people program decreasing RAR across a mesocycle? Oh, geez, this is a good question. So she's asking, I think, comparing a program where each exercise within the day starts with like, let's say an RPE of seven and then goes eight and then nine and then 10. So essentially you're working with a descending RAR within each exercise. So you might say, okay, we're doing a barbell bench press. The first set is gonna be with an RAR three and then two, and then one, and then zero. And so you're having this progressive uh, progression in relative intensity within the exercise versus a style of programming and progression that might say, okay, in week one, we're doing three RIR for everything. And then week two, two RIR for everything. And then week three, one RIR for everything. And week four, everything at zero or one RIR, and then we deload. And so the first one has all of those different RIRs within the same exercise, within the same workout. You're working an easier set and then a harder set, a harder set, a hardest set, and then you're moving on versus a, a style of progression where it's saying, okay, we have an easier week and then a harder week and then a harder week and then the hardest week and then a deload, let's say. Um, and so <laughs> essentially what you're having is two different ways to progress that are following some fairly basic principles that need to be there. And so we know that for hypertrophy, you need to be training with, a, let's say, above seven RPE or below four RIR, let's say. So within four reps from failure, your sets need to be within four or five reps from failure to be stimulative, right? Only, another way of saying is that only the reps that are within five reps from failure stimulate muscle growth. And so for this, these two examples, they're both doing that. You might have a, a style of programming where every time you're in the gym, you're doing a, a seven, eight, nine, ten 10 RPE, where you're having an easy set to warm up and then it gets harder, harder, harder failure you might have a style of progression where week one is easier, week two is harder, week three is hardest and, or harder, and then week four is hardest and then deload. And so what you're seeing is that all of the training, whether you're in the example one or example two, is within the hypertrophic, like within the stimulative zone of less than four reps in reserve. Whether you're doing that all in one workout, where you're doing, again, where you're starting with an easier set and then adding a little bit of weight or adding a little bit of reps and kind of progressing towards failure, or you're doing that over the course of week to week across a mesocycle, all of your training is stimulative, right? That's the number one thing is like, are we training in the stimulative zone of like greater than seven RPE or less than four reps in reserve? Yes. And the second principle that both of these, these progression models would be following is that you shouldn't always be training to failure, but you should train there sometimes. So we have the example one where you're doing, you know, let's say RPE seven, eight, nine, ten 10 for each exercise on each day. 
what that tells me is that this this sort of training progression is adhering to this principle of, hey, sometimes we go to failure and sometimes we don't. And to layer on top of that, maybe at an average of maybe one or two RIR across the mesocycle, right? We want some easier training. We want some harder training. And so whether you're at seven, eight, nine, ten RPE within each exercise or each week you are progressing in RPE or decreasing in RIR, what matters is some training is at failure, some training is at not, and you sh- or is at uh, is not at failure is is further from failure. Maybe averaging out to something like one or two RIR across the mesocycle, where I would say you probably have the best stimulative uh, uh, stimulus to fatigue ratio where you can probably accumulate the most volume or the most stimulus per how much fatigue cost you pay at about that one or two reps in reserve. You know, going to failure might get you more growth, but you also incur a lot more fatigue. And then going maybe four reps shy of failure, yeah, maybe you get less fatigue because it's an easier set, but you probably also get quite a bit less stimulus. And so what we're looking at is two different examples of how to progress that all fall into the hypertrophic stimulus range of less than four reps in reserve, close enough to failure, that also admit that sometimes training to failure is good and sometimes not training to failure is good, and averaging out maybe in that like one or two reps in reserve or averaging out in that like eight to 10 or eight or nine RPE. Now, the last principle would be that training should get harder over time. And so whether you're doing like this where it's a seven, eight, nine, 10 RPE within the same exercise in the workout or each week you are progressing in RPE or RIR, let's say, training should get harder over time. So my guess is the first example of seven, eight, nine, 10 RPE for each exercise. My guess is that something gets harder you know, week to week or over the course of the mesocycle, whether that's you adding an extra set to failure or that's you adding an entire, or, or you know, you turning the seven, eight, nine, 10 into eight, nine, 10, 10, uh, or you adding a whole nother set or you adding an intensity technique, right? And so training should get harder over time, should start easier coming out of a deload, let's say, and progress as you adapt to the stimulus. And then when that threshold for that stimulus gets so high that you can't recover from it, we deload and we start again. I would say I might prefer the seven, eight, nine, ten example where you're working harder within each workout in a more neurological or strength phase where progression in actual load might be preferred within a workout, but that's some more advanced shit. And yeah, cool. To sum it up, we want training to be within the stimulative zone of, let's say, within four reps of failure. We want to train to failure sometimes, but we also want a good amount of our training to not be to failure, maybe averaging out at around one or two RIR across the mesocycle, and training should get harder over time. Next question is from Rich Herehon. I've tried my best, my man. He says, love your podcast. Any other fitness podcasts podcasts you would recommend? Absolutely. And I, three of them came to mind for different reasons. Um, Sigma Nutrition was the first one, and it's probably the single best place to go for evidence-based nutrition discussions from everything from epidemiology to fat loss to, to body composition. Really, really, the in my opinion, the pinnacle for evidence-based uh, information on nutrition. And the second one would be Jordan Side's mini podcast. Now, I would say that it differs from Sigma, Sigma Nutrition, where it's not diving into the weeds of, you know, uh, it, cholesterol panels and epidemiology. What Jordan does best is he brings on his clients to talk about their stories, and then there's a ton of insight that can be gained from their discussion. So it's almost like a coaching call, but a coaching call where Jordan knows that what this person's going through, th- there's also a million other people going through this. And so it's very relatable, um, and you can gain a lot of insights from what other people are going through that were in your position, let's say. And the last one would be Stronger by Science podcast, which is uh, Eric Trexler and Greg Knuckles. Um, similar to Sigma Nutrition in the sense that it's extremely evidence-based, but it's a 
and, and definitely, definitely covers a lot of nutrition, but I'd say Stronger by Science also does a lot of research and reviewing on strength and power sports as well as nutrition topics. Um, and so I'd say Sigma Nutrition and Stronger by Science are both extremely evidence-based, but if you're looking for a little bit more of like strength and power sport related stuff, hypertrophy, you know, powerlifting, again, sports, athletics, um, Stronger by Science is definitely the way to go. Some of the smartest dudes in the game, Greg Knuckles is on another level. Um, cool. Next question. It's from Holistic RDN, and she asks, when to know you should bulk for progress? When do you know you've maxed your newbie gains slash maintenance gains? So essentially, when do you reach a point where, and I talk about this, I talked about this in a post this week, and maybe that's what spurred this. It's like, when do you know that recomp is all of a sudden not super practical for you anymore, and it might be time to go into a surplus? Now, there is no exact moment. There's no exact moment. It's no like, uh, wake up, where you wake up one day, and all of a sudden there's a piece of paper at the edge of your bed says, Suck it, newbie gains are over, time to go into a, a surplus. Like, that's just not a thing. But what you will notice is that your, the newbie strength gains that you were making, this, this like exponential strength gains that you were making as a newbie, when you would just go in the gym and magically be able to put on another five pounds or eke out another rep, and it seemed like, it seemed like the rate of progress was just gonna be linear forever. You will start to see that slow down. You will start PRing not every week, but every month, every two months. Um, so you'll see strength gains start to slow down. You'll also see visible changes start to slow down, but I think that the strength gain slowing down is probably a little bit more tangible. Visible changes tend to fluctuate a little bit more. It's not like you're like, oh, this month I don't see that quarter inch, you know, change in my chest measurements or whatever. Oh, I must be at this point. It's like, it's really difficult to, to tell. Uh, I think the strength gain slowing down is going to be a bit more tangible, something that you'll feel a little bit more. Uh, and so I would say those two things for sure. When strength gains slow down, visible changes slow down where you're not seeing this like crazy week to week linear progress anymore. And if you listen, if you've lifted intelligently with proper training structure and nutrition for maybe two to three years, you're probably there. And and what's funny is like, <laughs> listen to that again. If you've trained, if you've trained intelligently with proper training structure and, you know, good nutrition, not in a deficit for maybe two to three years, then it's probably time to consider if you want more muscle gain than you have or more muscle than you have right now, probably at that point where recomping at maintenance isn't super practical. That said, there are a lot of people, most of the people that are listening to this, that follow me on Instagram, that come to me for coaching, who have been, quote, working out for decades and don't meet that criteria because they've been program hopping or their program involves a lot of hopping, you know? Like, it, you know, there are a lot of people that have been working out for, for decades that don't actually meet the criteria of having lifted intelligently with proper structure and nutrition for years at a time, not in a deficit. I mean, that rules out a ton of people. Most people listening to this have more recompability, let's say, than they think. Most people need to, you know, first look at how long have I spent at maintenance with a proper training structure and intensity, getting close enough to failure, you know, hitting my protein, getting enough sleep, have I done that for years? And if you have, then yeah, I would tell you recomp is probably not super practical in the sense that you won't build much muscle at maintenance because you are more trained and you need a greater amount of resources to achieve like the growth of new muscle. Cool. Anything else I want to say on that? No, let's move it on. We're on 23 minutes here. Let's see. I can get through a couple more here. I got this. Faith in Fitness PT says, what's a goal you have for the next year in your career, life, and personal? Um... Let's start with career. I mean, I love one-on-one -on -one coaching. Um, I've revamped many parts of my service over the last couple of years. Every six months, I'm trying to push myself to kind of look over what I'm doing and see what needs upgrades. And I'm really looking forward to taking on some new clients in the fall. 
Um, I think just from a programming perspective, I've learned a lot in the last couple of years. I think from an organization, a system perspective, I've learned a lot and things have gotten a lot better. But I also think about the path for coaches to like make money and be successful in the industry. And obviously it's gonna come down to what you like doing, but I, I see several paths for coaches. And if you're a coach listening to this, I feel like I'm gonna leave out in-person personal training for now because I think that's a wonderful path, just not necessarily one that I'm confronting right now because I've, I've done that for a decade. It's not something I wanna go back to doing. But I feel like if you go online, you have a couple of options. You have like low cost, big group coaching. And I, and I think of like Jordan Syatt's inner circle. I think it's 30 bucks a month. And the goal is to help a ton of people with a low entry point in terms of dollars, right? 30 bucks a month. And then you have one-on-one coaching, which is gonna cost a little bit more, but obviously you get a lot more. You're getting one-on-one time with your coach. Right now, that's me. And right now, that's what I wanna keep doing. I fucking love it. I wanna Zoom with my clients. I wanna talk about advanced concepts. I wanna talk about what's going on with them, their specific situation. And I wanna look at forum videos and I wanna go over them in detail. And I wanna just, whatever, I wanna give a little bit more. I still have that drive in me. I love I, I just, I talk about it a lot. I have a lot of coach friends who are like, okay, should I sell programs? Should I do group coaching? Should I do one-on-one? Should I personal train as well? Uh, you know, what should I do? And for me, I know that my heart right now is in that one-on-one coaching space. I wanna have a certain number of people that I can give everything. And if that means I'm charging a little bit more so that I can give a little bit more, for me, that's where I like to sit. Um, and then I think of like group programming where I think of like what Paul Carter does and what Lifting Lindsay does. I think Lindsay has one-on-one uh, clients as well, but where you have a, a programming service, maybe in that 30 to $50 a month where people can join in and they get your really good programming, you know, exercise demos and, and demonstrations and obviously your progression schemes and all of the things that make a good program. Now that, I gotta tell you, that's something I would really enjoy. And I, I gotta say, the more I gain knowledge in this, you know, whatever it is, biomechanics, advanced programming, and the more I do it for myself, the more I have talks with other coaches, this is something I would really enjoy. So I'm genuinely considering or at least looking into what that would look like, whether it's on True Coach or Paul Carter uses Train Heroic. And if you're listening to this and you think it would be awesome, it'd be something that you'd wanna do, shoot me a DM, it's definitely gonna be motivating for me. Um, but this is something I would have a ton of fun with. I love programming, I love programming. And to have an, op- an option for people who don't necessarily want or need or wanna pay or you know, need the accountability of one-on-one coaching. I do want to figure out something else that could be manageable for me without taking so much time away from my one-on-one coaching that my service drops, right? Obviously you can only do so much. So I'm very hesitant about doing things and going, uh, you know, uh, uh, putting a whole bunch on my plate that takes away from the quality of my one-on-one coaching because I do know that that's where my heart is right now. So hopefully that answered the question. Um, in, in personal life, Jenna and I just moved to, to Texas. We're absolutely loving it. We had a nine month lease. And so we are in that mode right now where we're kind of, you know, four months in and we're trying to consider, do we want to stay here? Do we want to sign another lease? Is this our forever home? Is this a place we want to stay? And so that's going to be the thing that we decide in our next years. Like, are we going to go somewhere else? Uh, are we going to try another place to live? You know, even just for fun. I mean, we're both working remotely. So it's, you know, actually Jenna's starting EMT school soon, but even when she finishes that, she might, you know, we might want to consider do we want to, you know, settle down somewhere else? So we'll see. Next question, I'll get through two more here, <clears throat> is from NZSki82. He or she asks, carb cycling, is it a superior form of calorie deficit in any way? Are there benefits? Now, because you said, is it a superior form of calorie deficit? The answer is no. If you have all, you know, if you calorie cycle or you have more static, uh, I'm going to say calorie cycle because that's essentially what this is most of the time, but Calorie cycling would be having higher calories on some days and lower calories in other days. Carb cycling would be potentially having the same calories on all your days, but shifting that carb to fat ratio to kind of match your training, let's say, 
or not match your training where you just have three low carb days. Usually they're combined where your higher carb days of the carb cycling are also higher calorie days and the lower uh, calorie days are also lower carbohydrate days. And essentially what you're doing is you're fluctuating those cal the calories via carbohydrates. Is it superior form of calorie deficit? Meaning would you lose more weight doing car carb cycling than not doing carb cycling? Definitely, definitely, definitely not. Um, carb cycling, let's take it away from calorie cycling for a second is just an adherence tool. Like if you want to eat more on some days and less on other days, like great. If you average out to the same calories and protein and activity level at the end of the week, like it's going to be the same thing. So whether you're having high carb days or low carb days, what's going to matter for fat loss at the end of the day is calorie balance at the end of the week consistently. And so if carb cycling helps you do that, then fuck yeah, you should totally do it. If it doesn't help you doing it because you feel like shit on low carb days or the idea of having that level of like meticulous nature to your nutrition where you really are like struggling to make those trade-offs, you know, and having super low carb days is very uh, uh, not practical or just you don't like doing it. Well, then don't do it. The end of story, it's not superior in any way. Now, what I will say is, it, you know, how the amount of carbs that you're having and the timing of your carbs is not entirely irrelevant. Now, does it matter specifically in terms of a calorie deficit? No. Can it benefit performance and recovery? Can you, can, are there better times to eat carbohydrates maybe in a deficit in terms of performance and recovery? Yes. Can that have some indirect benefits in terms of overall body composition change via better training? Yes. Is it superior in terms of you'll lose more weight? No. And so what I'll say on carbohydrates and calorie deficits is that, you know, it might be a little bit, first of all, adherence is king. So everything I'm about to say, if it, if it doesn't make you adhere, then fucking don't do it. Um, but if you're looking to perform your best in a deficit, maybe you want to try and keep your carbohydrates as high as possible within the context of your calories so that you can have really good performance and maintain muscle the best you can. Obviously, you're not going to be building much muscle in a deficit and maybe just feeling better in your training sessions and recovering better from them. And so what I would probably advise is just in general, Again, this is not a huge needle mover, but it, you might want to keep your the the bulk of your carbohydrates in that peri-workout window, which is the time before, during, and after your training. And so if you're looking to really optimize training, whether you're in a deficit or not, it's probably a good practice, but even more so in a deficit because you have less overall calories. So when you're using them matters a little bit more. Um, you might be looking to have a carb, you know, the bulk of your carbohydrates, let's say, I don't know, 50 to 75% of the daily carbohydrates in that peri-workout window before, you know, during or after. Um, but again, is carb cycling superior in terms of fat loss? Nope, definitely not. It's definitely not special. It's not bad. It's just not special. Cool. Last question is from S Bonner zero. And she asks week vacation during mesocycle. Should I start the cycle over or just get back to it? Pretty easy answer. I would start over. I would start again from week one. I would assume that this is just a deload. And so you're either going to start the same program over or you're going to make some adjustments. Like you essentially deloaded. What matters is that you start again as if you've just deloaded, which means you're going to start with a little less volume, a little further from failure since you just, you know, kind of resensitized to the training stimulus, drop fatigue, and you don't need necessarily as much to get a really great stimulus. So whether you do that with the same program or you start a new program, what I care about most is that you treat it as if it's a new program. And so depending on how many weeks of that program and how psychologically fatigued you are, certain movements and how much you really want to, you know, do have some variation, um, you might want to start the same program over again. Uh, uh, a decent rule of thumb is like, hey, if you've done one or two weeks and then you have a, a break because you have a vacation that starts, go back and start that program again. You haven't really exhausted uh, the, the adaptations from those movements. 
or from the entirety of the program, I would start it over. But if you're three or four weeks in, listen, you can go back and start the same program. You're probably going to do great. But you might be like, okay, I've done this long enough to have an opinion on certain exercises where, you know, this didn't really work well. I didn't really love this. I had knee pain doing this. And so if you've been doing it for three or four weeks and you have an opinion of stuff that you really would like to change, then go ahead and do that, right? Cool. All right, we're at 32 minutes. I think I did a decent job, except spent fucking 10 minutes on the first two questions. Listen, thanks for everybody who asked a question. I really appreciate it, guys. I'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.